electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer is the morning off and joining us for the hour, Jim Stewart, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the New York Times, a CNBC contributor, author of Deep State, Trump, the FBI and the rule of law. Rally rolls on today, we think, as the Nasdaq goes for 10 consecutive gains, only two times this decade has it managed such a streak. U.S. equities close at 1 Eastern, bond market closes at 2 ahead of tomorrow's holiday. Our roadmap begins with the Santa Rally. The Nasdaq with nine consecutive record closes, longest streak since 1998. Retailers are bracing for that last-minute rush on this final shopping day before Christmas, but delivery companies also under pressure from the late push. And WeWork's co-founder Adam Newman may have big reasons to smile this holiday season. A report says his $1.6 billion exit package could get sweeter. We will fill you in. So with markets in record territory, investors are in a much better mood than they were a year ago today. If you recall, the 2018 Christmas Eve period saw the Dow tumble 653 points, S&P down 27, NASDAQ with a 140 drop. Since then, those stocks have obviously surged, the NASDAQ leading the major indices with a 44% gain since then. We forget, December 26, we came in the day after Christmas, and the Dow and the S&P rallied 5%. So it was wild a year ago. Well, I, I remember vividly sitting on Christmas Eve watching this show, and I probably shouldn't have been doing that on Christmas Eve, but nevertheless I was, and it was plunging, and I had this sinking feeling, and then I thought, wait a minute, it's Christmas Eve, it's just the stock market, stocks go down, they go up, I'm not going to let this ruin my holiday. And somehow I did, I, I put it aside, I had a great time, but it was, a, it was a pretty grim, I mean, you were delivering lumps of coal a year ago at this time. Yeah. And now the journal comes out with this piece today, guys, called basically about the everything rally, how everything has rallied this year as the Fed has cut three times, trade tensions have lessened. And their argument for the next year is that multiples have room to run. You can be looking at 19 and a half times 178 would get you close to 3,500 on the S&P. That's true. I, I, I mean, I was looking at the multiples myself as just a you know a rough gauge as are we in any kind of over-exuberant territory. And... You know, they're starting to get up there. They're, I would say it looks kind of fully valued without a pretty good growth and earnings trajectory. But I, I just see no reason why we wouldn't have that. I think a key factor that maybe some people have underestimated is this incredibly low unemployment rate with money flowing into the pockets of some, you know, marginalized workers who haven't had a regular paycheck in a long time. And, you know, consumer spending is a big part of the economy. I think that's going to provide a very strong floor, especially kind of like some of the basic products and materials that retailers like Walmart that, in fact, do uh, cater and respond to people who are not, have not been that affluent before. All right. 
I think we got some news on Uber. We got a little David. bit of news involving Uber. Not perhaps that big a surprise if anybody who's been watching Travis Kalanick's continued sale of stock. He sold almost all of his ownership stake in the company. Of course, the company that he founded, but he will now be stepping off the board of directors. Um, Uber announcing that Mr. Kalanick will resign effective uh, on the 31st of this month to focus on what they say are his new business and philanthropic endeavors. Uh, there's a nice quote from Derek Khosrowshahi, the current CEO. Of course, remember, Mr. Kalanick had been involved in, uh, well, a lot of tension there uh, from that period of time when he was in control and then gave up the CEO ship, but obviously retained significant ownership stakes. But that has changed significantly. Uh, Josh Lipton, you've been following this as well, of course, uh, through the time uh, that he started to be a seller, and that has picked up dramatically. One could imagine that would be followed by his stepping down from the board. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, listen, Dave, as you just mentioned, maybe not a a big surprise here. Listen, um, Travis Kalanick has been um, systematically selling his his shares since November 6th. So as you point out, maybe not a a huge surprise here. Uh, He he was on course to actually uh, completely exit his stake from the company. You remember uh, the co-founder, the former um, CEO of the company, he actually sold about uh, $2.5 billion worth of shares in the company since that lockup period um, expired last month. He actually... um, he had less than uh, 10% of his holdings left, according to public filings. So not a huge surprise here, but certainly a, a big step, um, a huge milestone in, in it for this company. Of course, the founder of this company gets a lot of credit. Uber, a lot of people would say, would not be where it was without Kalanick, though, of course, analysts, even those who are bulled up on this stock, would, of course, talk about, as you mentioned there, um, some of what they would refer to as the excesses at the company under his watch. Um, but again, probably not maybe too surprising for investors, given what he's been doing with those shares, David. Yeah. You know, it's funny, though, Josh, because there's been this uh, sort of story out there for some time, certainly given the, uh, the performance of the stock since it went public and what has been a poor performance, this idea that Kalanick would somehow come back a la Steve Jobs at Apple. Uh, clearly, we can, I think, dismiss that at this point. But there had been that thought. You know, certainly we know the, the downside of Mr. Kalanick's time as the CEO, but many also say that the company perhaps lacked the lack the energy and passion that it may have had during his period of time as well. Yeah, we certainly we certainly heard that that um, that stated, David. Um, you know, we look at the recent performance of the stock. Obviously, it's it's been rocky uh, under Dollar Coach Shai, though we should note um, when the company last reported, um, listen, they are on track for that EBITDA profitability uh, by 2021. Some bulls grabbed hold of that. That was uh, faster than what some of the street expected, though, you know, uh, there wasn't all great news with that last report either. Some metrics uh, came in at least slightly less than what the street is looking for. Remember, the stock actually took a, a hard hit that day on bookings and users. Um, the Calix move here, um, the systematic selling, we should note, um, you talk about the energy, but it was certainly interpreted by some um, as perhaps a lack of confidence in the company's future. Um, so we'll see how investors react to this headline, though, David. Well, we're looking at video here uh, a moment ago of Travis on IPO day when there was this awkward dance optically between him on the floor along with uh, other members of current management. It's hard not to think, though. I mean, you you can't blame a a founder for diversifying their portfolio, but liquidating your stake is uh, almost an indictment of the company's prospects, isn't it? Well, I I wouldn't necessarily jump to that conclusion. I mean, this is a a fairly uh, interesting but very specific situation where I think it was very awkward to have the founder with a substantial ownership stake who had supposedly relinquished all management oversight. 
did he have to get rid of every single share? I don't know. But he, he, I think for the health of the company, he really needed to remove himself both operationally and from an ownership position. And I think that's because, and I met Kalanick, and I, I thought he was very smart, very charming. He didn't come across as the fire-breathing dragon that others knew him to be. But um, there, has, there has to be a significant shift here from the kind of hard-charging, aggressive, upset-the-apple-cart, thumb in your face, we don't care about the local regulations, to a global charm offensive to win over regulars. This has gone from a scrappy upstart to a very major established company that threatens you know, existing interests. And Travis is just not the right person for that. So I think he did need to sell. I do, really. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Well, if he didn't, he's like, what, what's, you know, what's the CEO going to do when he gets the phone call from a huge shareholder? I mean, of course, well, he had a lot. He listen. did. He had a number, a lot of influence. He had a number of, I mean, initially a number of board seats that were sort of given to him. Remember when they had the big fight with their with their venture investors as well, Kalanick, and then Khosrow Shahi came in, and we forget the drama that took place there. But, you know, there are a number of people, I think, Jim, who still view him, and obviously I've spent time with him as well, that, that um, think there's something missing. That that founder energy and passion yeah. and now willingness to sort of fight for every last inch uh, is missing to some extent. Well, I, I'm sure it is missing. And that, that, but that's, isn't that the story of all of these, you know, high-flying, innovative, upset-the-apple-cart, uh, upstarts. I mean, they have to, at some point, make the transition from being, you know, the scrappy newcomer on the block, challenging the status quo, to becoming part of the status quo. Now, when exactly is that going to happen? It's, it's never going to be perfectly timed or very easy. I mean, there, there have been many examples of founders have trouble making that transition. Right, but we've still got a... Bu- I mean, it's interesting when you think about founders. Obviously, Zuckerberg comes to mind as the founder who is still on top, still every day, making those key decisions for arguably one of the most important companies in the world. It's actually um, a really good point, Jim. I mean, can you imagine Zuckerberg not even becoming chairman emeritus, like leaving the board completely and selling all but 10% of what he owned? I, I agree. It's kind of hard to yeah, imagine yeah. at this point. But... That said... Well, Bezos, could you imagine that? No, you couldn't. No. Um, I can go through a bunch. Well, uh, Mr. Musk, who you've covered, could you imagine that? No, but (laughs) but here's the difference. They have succeeded. I mean, they may be the exception rather than the rule. They have... You know, they're at various transitional points in the histories of these companies, but they have made successfully the transition to, you know, upstart into establishment companies. Although, let's acknowledge, they have been running into some problems as they have become the, the biggest kid on the block. I mean, there are a lot, there are a host of regulatory issues that they're confronting now that they didn't before, privacy issues, their influence in the world, massive problems that come with their success. Right. And I think the jury is still out on how successfully they're going to navigate this new set of challenges to sort of growth. Speaking of which... Uh Price is still here at 3040, uh, about a third below IPO at 45. Are you? What do you think about the prospects for ride sharing and all their ancillary businesses? You see us getting back to 45 any anytime soon? Uh, I, I, don't, I wouldn't predict the timing of it, but I've been positive. I've been bullish on the story for both Uber and Lyft. I think these are transformative companies. I think 
uh, yes, they're going to they're, they're meeting some headwinds here. They're very powerful, established interests trying to block them. But the the model is very good, and especially as you move to self-driving, self-delivery, you start solving some of these uh, environmental problems. Now, I think the the future is very bright. I mean, I think this really is a transformative model. Uh, that could end up being very, very successful. Well, Josh, that's going to be a, a key story for next year, uh, the degree to which they get out of markets uh, with EATS where they're not number one or two, and then how the unit economics work as we get closer, what kind of advances we make toward autonomy in the years ahead. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to watch this story play out. Listen, uh, Uber certainly attracted uh, a few more bulls. I mean, one you guys know very well. I remember Jim uh, Jim Cramer, just a few weeks ago, I think late November, thought, you know, with the lockup uh, period behind it, um, I remember Jim thought it was maybe t- time to take a look at Uber. Um, in terms of um, uh, Jim Stewart, uh, my old professor at Columbia, makes, I think, a great point. I mean, he's right. Different companies at different points in their history have, you know, a need for different kind of leaders. You know, at, at one point, you need kind of maybe the scrappy founder, and maybe there's the feeling that now, though, you need more of the, uh, the kind of professional operator. And, and Travis, kind of like himself, listen, he, he's moved on. He has new um, ambitions as well. You know, he's an adventure investor now um, in those kind of startups like Cloud Kitchens. Um, but certainly an interesting headline and one I'm sure investors will be paying close attention to today, guys. Yeah, and we'll keep an eye on Travis as well because he is an interesting fellow. And as you say, these cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens, it certainly seems to be putting a lot of capital behind them, Josh. Thank you. Uh, Josh Lipton uh, reporting for us uh, from out west, of course. Coming up a day after firing its CEO, we're going to tell you what Boeing is telling its suppliers to do. Also ahead, if you thought there was outrage over Adam Newman's, speaking of founders who stepped aside, $1.6 billion golden parachute. Well, hang on, because it could be getting even bigger for the WeWork co-founder. Here's another look at futures as we get ready. Remember, it's a shortened trading session today. We end at 1 o'clock. Looks like we may have a higher open. A lot more squawk in the street straight ahead. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Some new developments at Boeing a day after the firing of CEO Dennis Mullenberg. The company's told its 737 MAX suppliers to suspend parts shipments for a month beginning in mid-January. The jet, of course, still grounded and airlines have now taken MAX flights off their schedules as far forward as June. Uh, some of the news outlets uh, have begun looking at filings uh, on a severance, uh, estimating somewhere between 32 and 39 million. But the supplier part is what's interesting. And now those companies will have to decide how many workers to furlough or lay off for a month at least. Well, I I mean, we've known that 
Boeing sits at the middle of a huge economic ecosystem. And so far, they were, you know, buffering the impacts of all of this by keeping the production going. And now, you know, the time has come where they're having to shut this down. And I think we are going to see some substantial ripple effects moving through the broader economy. And um, discussion continues this morning about uh, Calhoun and whether or not it's enough. Heard on the street this morning, Column said it's probably not. I don't know if you saw that, Al. That's article this morning. More people need to go? Yeah. No. I, I don't think you hollow out the company at a time when you're still dealing with a crisis. I mean, we've never really gotten an accounting of exactly what happened here and who's responsible. But everyone in Boeing is not incompetent or responsible for this particular thing. I mean, it would be nice to know that they have pinpointed the responsibility and taken the, taken the right steps. But short of that, I, I think they need some continuity here as well as change. Yeah. You have to have a mix of both of it's, them. And it's also, it's, it's a difficult industry from which to pluck somebody from the outside. Not that you can't do it, obviously. Calhoun had been a board member before, before becoming chairman, but difficult to find operating people who you can just put in here, particularly in the midst of a crisis, is as though as that they've been undergoing. You could argue maybe the board could be up for some recomposition at some point. Well, yeah. Know. I mean, and we still don't know why the board waited as long as it did, but at least they finally did take action. I've also been wondering, could there be a silver lining for Boeing here? I mean, when this thing finally, the max, finally rolls down the runway, surely it's going to be the most scrutinized aircraft in the history of aviation. And, you know, as a flyer, I would feel maybe there's something really good about that. You know, it's, it's going to be the safest plane in the air. I hope that's the case. But it, God knows it, they are really going over every single detail on that thing. Right. Well, your point about the complexity of the company's operations is well taken. Uh, and you added yesterday the point about safety being this completely other uh, important element to uh, their operations. And Calhoun's been on the board of CAT. Uh, obviously, his experience at GE, where you're dealing with multiple suppliers and precision manufacturing. So I guess to that extent, his experience is critical, right, and relevant. Well, definitely. And if they have solved the technical problems, which I hope they have, um, then the communication function is going to be absolutely critical. It's going to be reassuring a vast number of constituencies, starting with the flying public, with Congress, the suppliers, the airlines that vast you know, network of people they deal with, that's going to take a really, really skilled communicator to inspire confidence that, that it is safe and that that's the primary mission of the company. And it, it really, I think the biggest failing of Boeing was from the beginning not to recognize what a catastrophe this was. Well, and as Jim said on the phone yesterday, David, uh, he believes that Mullenberg's exit was almost uh, a condition for getting this plane back in the air through the FAA's eyes. It may have been, yeah. given the worsening relations he apparently had, and this is according to reporting from our own Phil LeBeau and others uh, with the FAA. And, by the way, the frustration of his board and some investors with what had been continually uh, incorrect assumptions he was making in terms of when the plane would be returned to service. Well, not only were they incorrect, but they were incorrect always in the same direction i.e. over-optimistic. Right. And nobody would have been, I think, upset if he'd been incorrect and said, oh, it's going to be June, and then it turned out to be April. Right. But it was consistently too positive. And I think, you know, optimism is a good quality as a CEO, <laughs> but at some point it becomes delusional. Yes, yes. 
When we come back, WeWork's co-founder Adam Newman speaking of optimism. I could be getting even more money to walk from the company he founded. We'll get the latest on the size of his golden parachute. Take a look at futures here. Cast of the Nutcracker on the floor of the NYSE on this Christmas Eve. We're back in a moment. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Santa Claus has been in the building, as you know. Uh, NASDAQ's going for 10 straight. We've had two streaks like that this decade, but uh, longer than that, you got to go back to July of 09. Opening bell, just in uh, six minutes away. You're watching CNBC Squawk on the Street, live from the financial capital of the world, where the opening bell set to ring in just over three minutes on this Christmas Eve. A shortened session today. Stocks close at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Bond market closes at 2. Tesla's been an interesting story, obviously. Uh, hit 420 uh, yesterday, all-time high. Uh, Musk responded with some tweets of his own. <laughs> saying, whoa, stock is so high, LOL. Uh, today, Adam Jonas over at Morgan Stanley has some thoughts on the stock at 420. Uh, we are not bullish on Tesla longer term, especially as over time we believe Tesla could be perceived by the market more and more like a traditional OEM. Um, we are prepared for a potential surge in sentiment through the first half of 2020. The question, the sustainability, seems like we've already seen that surge to some degree, right? Right. I, um, I mean, I, I think the question that Adam is posing there is a good one. Is this an auto company or is it something else? And if it's an auto company, someday the valuations are to come down into auto company range, which are not that high. But I, I tend to go along with Musk. This is not just an auto company. It's got, I mean, don't forget the solar thing, the power generation, the battery operations, power. That's a huge, huge potential market for them. And as we're moving into self-driving, autonomous vehicle, artificial intelligence, who knows what frontiers they're going to be able to able to master. So I like the story, and I think it is. it has the potential to be way more than a car company. I was struck by Jim's uh, <laughs> forgiveness yeah, of hitting. Uber's economics. I, I, was, epi- I hope this is in the speculative <laughs> Stewart portfolio. Well, you know, you've heard me say this before. There are some companies you value on metrics, you know, revenue, cash flow, earnings. There are others you value on the story. And that depends on how good the story is. I happen to think that, that 
Tesla has a very good story. Uber has a very good story. I don't believe that about everything, but I think these are good stories. But I readily acknowledge you're buying the story here. You don't have any numbers to support these valuations. And you're yeah. not you're not uh, sort of turned off by leverage, clearly, right? With I guess it rates at this at this level. Not at, not in these early phase companies like this. You're going to have a lot of leverage. You're going to have a lot of borrowed money, a lot of venture capital in there. Um, it's too early to use those traditional. I will say I will say this coming back to looking at it from an M and A perspective, the 420 tweet. Of course, oftentimes we see boards that say no, or perhaps should say no. And in this case, as fleeting as it was, as unlikely as it was that he was ever actually going to be able to take over the company, you could make an argument that if he had and it had closed, let's call it the middle of this year, you would have gotten your 420 in cash. But here you are. Not That's that great. much long later, and perhaps, you know, another example of when it's right for a board in cases where it is more likely to say, no, that price is not high enough, that's not good enough, we'd rather take our chances. Right, well, the, the 420 valuation was not Musk's fondest power. I mean, he did not use any financial analysis, as we know, to come up with that number. But you're right. Even if his math was not. There's the opening bell and the S&P 500 at the CNBC Real-Time Exchange. And the big board, as we said, it is the New York City Ballet celebrating the annual production of the Nutcracker at the NASDAQ USPS Operation Santa. As uh, the Santa tracker is going to be in full force. And it already is around the world, but will be here in the States uh, in just a few hours. Um, there's been a lot of talk this morning on Squawk about Netflix. Which uh, is the Santa? Is, I like that. What is that? I have no idea. We got the fire. We got Santa <laughs> crossing the globe. That's great. That is great. Um, Netflix uh, stock of the decade. We belong in saying uh, best S and P stock for the past ten years, up almost four thousand uh, percent. Today, there's some uh, wire reporting on comp for next year. Uh, Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos, who's uh, structure, payment structure is a little bit different. One's much more reliant on options, Hastings, right. than Sorrento. Yeah, but you know what's interesting is they're both, it's the same no- total number. Uh, and by the way, Ted Sarando's making 20 million bucks in salary and 14.65 million in annual stock options. These are vested options, by the way. Reed Hastings, $650,000 salary, 34 million invested stock options. But the two of them together, it's the same number, which is interesting. The board chose sort of to go in that direction. It shows you just how valuable Mr. Sarandos is, of course, viewed as well in terms of the guy who's brought all that programming together at Netflix. And they're some pretty big numbers, although nobody can argue that Reed Hastings has not created an enormous oh, amount I of shareholder I mean, value. Think, about, think how Netflix has transformed the media world over the last decade, where, you know, people used to, like, there'd be, what, appointment TV, and you would wait for each week for a new episode of something. And now people binge watch. They can get anything they want anytime. They just push a button and come streaming in. And massive choice. Great quality new entertainment. It's really been an extraordinary run. And again, I think the compensation, it's very performance-oriented, which I, you know, as a share, I'm not a shareholder, but if I was a shareholder, I'd like that. Meanwhile, we've spent a lot of time discussing what the next decade is going to look like for this company, one that is going to include and does already include a great deal more competition than it faced early on, um, and whether or not it's going to start to see sort of domestic subs at the very least 
have a lot of churn and perhaps even decline as a result of the entrance of Disney+, Plus, the expected entrance of HBO Max early next year, the Peacock entrance, which is going to be a streaming ad-supported service from our parent company, Comcast, not to mention the existing players as well. It's getting right. crowded. We all know that. And it will be interesting to watch Netflix in terms of how they choose to go about weathering that and whether or not their budget needs to continue to increase from what is already stratospheric numbers in terms of what they spend on content. Well, there there are two big questions over the next few years I'm really fascinated by. One is, how many streaming services is the market going to support? Is it three? Is it six? Is it ten? I know it's not a hundred like we have on cable, but that number is going to be very critical to determine what sort of ultimate profit margins these companies are going to be able to realize. The second big question to me is, do you, can the franchise model that Disney has used so successfully in the theatrical be transformed over into this streaming area? In other words, Disney is without question the leader in established intellectual property. They're doing the Mandalorian, spinning out these, these brands. Netflix still doesn't have the big franchise property. They're inventing, you know, they're, and good for them. They've done amazing original programming. Uh, but that clash will be very, very interesting to watch, I think, as well. Uh, president's on the tape uh, talking about North Korea, saying that if there is, in fact, a Christmas a week surprise, that we'll deal with it. Um, says, uh, this is literally a uh, headline out of Reuters, uh, Trump says North Korea's surprise may be a nice surprise, might be a vase. Uh, but I wonder if you think geopolitics could come out of nowhere uh, if, in fact, the North Koreans are interested in testing us. Geopolitics can always come out of nowhere. Um, and, but relatively few of those events, I think, end up historically having huge impacts on the market. I mean, you, you see something like World War II, well, that's just, like, monumental if effect on the global economy. But these little short-term provocations, I think, tend to be fleeting. But the the risk is always there. I I mean, I I was reading an article recently that somebody was saying, look, there's always something bad that could happen tomorrow, but we can't go through life planning or anticipating things that we have no control over and have no way of knowing. So, yeah, the risk is always there. North Koreans tend to use periods like this one, where news flow is light to try to get the most attention that they can uh, around the world. On the other hand, I have to say, I wasn't aware of a North Korea threat until the tweet. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we don't need to play this one up well, too the, much. Yeah, they're just... potentially planning another missile test, which is, okay. yeah, which is uh, what... But maybe we're just going to get a vase. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't know what that means. Right. That's a new um, You think about threats, though, Jim. It's funny. The one that comes up most often when I talk to senior executives or boards or CEOs is the cyber threat, actually, uh, and is the, is the concern uh, that at some point there's going to be something very significant, perhaps even catastrophic, you hate to say it. That would get everybody's attention. Right. Hopefully it never happens. But it certainly seems to be the paramount concern of a lot of people. You can imagine why, of course. Well, there seem to be a lot of smart people around the world who have devoted their lives to penetrating, disrupting, hacking. I don't know what motivates them, but they're out there. And I think the, the test is going to be who's going to win this battle, the disruptors, the criminals, or the people trying to make these systems safe. Yep. 
I'd like to think that you know we can put the resources there to block these people. But they, let's face it, they've scored some pretty shocking successes. And or governments like North Korea or Iran or, or Russia. Russia. Um, one of the more interesting stories, of course, of the last year, because I won't be here next year, so I can start talking about the year and stories, was the collapse almost, almost collapse of WeWork. Adam Newman, of course, the company's founder, its, it's CEO. Well, he's still in the news because he could be getting even more walking away money from WeWork. His golden parachute could balloon to as much as $2 billion. That from what had been a $1.6 billion deal. This is according to the FT. The uh, additional $350 million or so would come if there is a successful IPO. Newman owns millions of profit interests, and therefore they'd pay out. If it went public, it hit 35 bucks a share. That seems somewhat unlikely. Of course, all this began because of the company's failure to be able to actually come to the public markets. Perhaps rare instance where the public markets said, no, we don't want it, and we are not going to buy it, we're not going to value it anywhere near what you think we should. That, of course, created an entire uh, series of events that led to his leaving and SoftBank taking control. Well, I, I think the Newman compensation package is one of the astonishing stories of the year. And the idea that you would have this massively visible failure in trying to bring it public, with even questions being raised about, is this whole thing a house of cards in any event? And then the founder walks away with $1.6 billion. Now he may get an extra three fifty or something, but let's just look at the one point six. That on the face of it is shocking. I really, I've given some thought about this because what was the leverage that he had in order to negotiate that kind of exit package? And I, I suspect that it's, it's very similar to what we sometimes see, see with borrowers. You think in a borrowing relationship, the lender has the upper hand. But there is a tipping point where if you borrow enough, you have the advantage. And he had one major financier in SoftBank and billions of dollars at stake. So they could let him go. He could be nothing. The thing could collapse. They lose billions. He loses his net worth. So big deal. Or they could sink more money and pay him out in the hope that this actually can continue. And ironically, once you have managed to extract that much money out of a single lender or investor, you have tremendous luck. That's like the old joke, right? If you owe the bank a certain amount of money, it's the bank's problem, right? right? Not yours. I have to say I've never reached that position, but um, (laughs) it does happen. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. Obviously, many of WeWork uh, employees, some of whom were laid off, feel very differently (laughs) given what happened to them versus what happened to the company's I'm afraid it's these kinds of stories that fuel anti-capitalist furor out there in, in the public. And I, I can get that. It was like the same thing in the Wall Street crisis where the, the, the banks are on the brink of failing and the government stepped in and you know bailed them out and then suddenly the CEOs got these huge pay packages. That yeah. was corrosive. I mean, I hear people saying, like, how could this guy get that kind of money? Capitalism is corrupt. It's, it doesn't, it's not fair. Well, nothing is perfectly fair. And I, again, I do think this is an aberrational situation. Yeah, and it really comes down to one person here, and that person is Masa's son and his decision-making and his willingness to bet fully on Mr. Newman, as he likes to do with other founders as well. No SoftBank Vision Fund no, and no Masa to, to run it and give those enormous checks, and this is a different story. Well, and again, the stories I've read about how he swept through, you know, um, Newman gave him like a tour of the office, and then suddenly he says, okay, here's a check for $4 billion or something. I, I mean, wow. What, I mean, this guy Newman must be 
he must have known how to key into this guy. He, if nothing else, he knew how to read his investors. He does. He's a very charismatic gentleman who also could connect well with people. I mean, it's not like he did, like there wasn't something behind the ability to create this company. Which still is there, and Marcelo Claré is the chairman, and they're trying to figure out, uh, uh, obviously, a strategy that's going to mean that WeWork survives and thrives uh, into the next decade. We'll see. Last thing, guys, from the president speaking in Florida. Uh, he does say that the China deal is done, just working on the paperwork, and that there will be a signing ceremony uh, on the China deal. That's going to be a big story in early January is when we get a look at the text, how much of this uh, commitments to buy anything uh, American is on paper, and then the degree to which we get those two together, she and Trump, to sign this thing. Right. I mean, it's been, I assume he means phase one is done. Um, and I think people have been scratching their heads trying to tally up, well, what did we give up? What did we gain? What, you know, is this a net positive? Uh, I mean, it's a huge relief to the market that at least this phase of the fighting seems to be over, and there aren't risks of even greater tariffs on this. But I think the jury is still very much out on the details of this and whether in the end we really gain from it. So with all that, uh, with the president's comments, obviously, and the pre-market action, we're taking a bit of a breather on some light volume. Dow's down 11. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Bob? Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas to everybody. Of course, uh, two to one, advancing to declining stocks. And that's the big story, guys. Uh, every day, the breadth of the market advances, broadening out. And that's one of the reasons we're new highs here. Hope you like that fire. I feel like I need a glass of cognac and a Perry Como sweater at this point. The sectors are cyclicals that keep moving here this month. Energy stocks, metals and mining. Real estate's been a little bit weak. Some of those retail mall REITs have had some issues, of course. We understand what that is. And oil and gas and exploration companies, they're having a little bit of a moment here moving up. Remember, you get this mean reversion. The old losers tend to be bigger winners in the new year. Uh, December of last year, we talked a little bit about this yesterday. Uh, what a cascading series of events it was up until this moment uh, last year. Remember President Trump tweeted he was tariff man on December 4th. We had a drop notably on the S&P 3% that day, December 19th, the Fed hiked, and that created a cascading series of four just lousy days in the market, culminating today, December 24th, down 2.7%. Also remember we had Steve Mnuchin making some confusing comments. He had talked to the heads of some of the big banks. They had ample liquidity. Nobody knew what he was talking about. Other people came on and said, no, no, it was really about discussions about Powell and the Federal Reserve and the economy and how things were doing. And everybody was thoroughly confused by the end of the day on December 24th. At least we had a bottom of some sorts uh, at that point. Uh, remember what was going on. Of course, uh, if you take a look at the, at the markets here, by that time, December 24th, we were down 15%. So if you take a look at the S&P, there we go, the tariff man, the Fed hikes, and we bottomed and uh, bounced back in the last couple of days. The good news is all that's over. We don't need to worry about it because everything is exactly the opposite of what it was on December 24th of last year. Trade and tariff war, it was heating up last year. Now there's hopes for truth. The Fed was raising rates last year. Now they're neutral and they've been cutting rates at the end of this year. The global slowdown, well, we were worried that it was cascading down. We were going to have a very big earnings recession. Didn't happen. There's talk of a bottoming now. And there's certainly no talk of a recession, at least in the first part of 2020. And remember, we also had a U.S. government shutdown that was looming. That was a big issue. That's kind of faded in everybody's memory. But that's not happening. Of course, we have no shutdown. Is the market going to be up or down? in the next year. I get this question every time this year, and the answer is nobody knows, but play the averages. I tend to look at what happens to the S&P year over year with a dividend. That's total return, including the dividend, which is 2%. Right now, guys, in the last 90 years, the S&P 500 year over year has been up 72% of the time when you include the dividend. 
It's been down 28% of the time. Next Thursday, this coming Thursday, we'll talk a little bit about the long-term averages and how the stock market works under very long cycles. But the bottom line is, stick with the markets. They generally tend to be up year over year. Guys, back to you. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Bob Pisani. Now time to head to the bond pits. Check in with Rick Santelli at the CME Group in Chicago. Rick. Good morning and thank you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to all viewers and listeners. You know, when I look up at Treasuries, obviously we're closing the year out on the low end of what many analysts, economists, and armchair technicians thought with regard to all maturities. If you look at an intraday of 10 today, you can see it's climbing a bit. And if you zoom into a two-day, well, 194 today. Yesterday, a little bit lower. We've taken out the high. Zoom it back for an entire week, and you can really see we've been here before. We always seem to stop right around 195. But volume is thin. Holiday markets, early closures. Over the next several sessions, many think that we could go through. We could slice through that level. Might have not have long-term implications, though, and that is the point. Another big issue is Bob was discussing how things have changed. All these yield curve spreads that went along with and in part fueled the recession talk were misguided. We spent some time in negative territory, but not much. And many of us continue to monitor 10s minus 2s. It reached a 30 basis point separation last week, and that was the widest in 13 months. But we've seen on those charts that the long end is kind of stuck. But the short maturities, not so much. Look at this year-to-day chart of five-year minus two-year. See how it's widened out to 10 basis points? All the spaces in the short maturity and all along the curve continue to open up. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli. Uh, for more on today's movers, let's get to Bertha Coombs over the NASDAQ market site. Hey, Bertha. Hi, Carl. Another day, another record for the NASDAQ. Uh, Apple helping, contributing to that. But the stock of the year really has been AMD. It's the biggest gainer in the NASDAQ 100, and it's seen this huge turnaround from a year ago. A year ago, going into Christmas Eve, it was down four straight days, losing 14.5%. And take a look at that big turnaround. We've seen a huge turnaround in as the sentiment has turned around on trade. But the big comeback this year has really been for healthcare, and biotech is one of those. Biotech last year was down nine straight days going into that December 24th low. It was down two straight quarters coming into here the end of the year. It's made a really nice bounce back. And when you take a look at some of the newest listings here in the NASDAQ, the best performers are all biotechs. Beyond Meat is the next one, up about 200% for the year over to you guys. All right. Thanks, Bertha. I should, we should point out also RBC uh, takes their AMD target to 53. Uh, I think the title of the report is In Lisa Sue We Trust. Best S&P uh, of the year, as, as uh, Bertha said. I feel like we know somebody else who likes that yeah, Lisa yeah, Sue. Yeah, yeah, I can't yes. remember. His name's Jim, but he doesn't look like you. <laughs> Make sure to check out our podcast. You can listen to the opening bell hour of Squawk on the Street wherever you listen to podcasts. Best podcast in the world. We're back in a moment. Dow's down 29. As we approach the end of 2019, CNBC is taking a closer look at what investors can expect in the new year. Phil LeBeau has the 2020 playbook for the automobile sector. Next year is a huge one for Tesla and its investors as Model Y deliveries begin. And it could rack up big sales for two reasons. First, crossover utility vehicles are in demand. Second, Tesla will build the Model Y at its plant in China. 
and China is the world's largest market for electric vehicles. Meanwhile, you can tap the brakes expecting much from self-driving cars next year. Yes, companies like Waymo and Cruise are making progress when it comes to autonomous vehicles, but the technology still has a ways to go. Bottom line, you won't see a lot of autonomous vehicles on the road in 2020. But what you should see next year are strong truck and SUV sales. Americans are still buying these bigger models at a near record pace. Yes, they are paying more for those vehicles, and that is expected to continue. But as long as unemployment remains low and consumer confidence remains high, there will be plenty of demand for trucks, SUVs, and crossovers, which now account for two-thirds of the new vehicles sold in the U.S. Global auto markets had its challenges, and even in the U.S., uh, auto sales have been strong but haven't really grown in the last uh, four or five years. Well, you know, we've seen now quite a few years of very high sales, and it, it is a cyclical business. I, I think in a way, what's more surprising is it hasn't actually tapered off more than it has. I think, you know, a year ago, the fears of investors certainly was that the sales had peaked. We're going to be seeing a declining sales period at a tough time for the automakers. But again, here's where I think the high employment is really kicked in. I mean, if, if you haven't had a paycheck in a long time, you suddenly get one, what do you do with it? What's one of the first things you want to do? If you've got a car that's, you know, past its sell-by date, you want to get a new car. It's one of the most basic things you're going to invest in. And I think it's that has really helped prop things up. Yeah. Interesting story today, though, in the journal worth to read about Americans overall driving less. Numbers are coming down. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, moving to cities and, uh, and all of that, it's true. As we go to break, uh, look at some blue chips that are finishing the year with strong momentum. Uh, UNH, Apple leading the Dow so far for the quarter, at least. We're down 30 points on the blue chips. S&P's down almost three. If you missed the news this morning, just in the last hour, Uber says that uh, Travis Kalanick will resign from the board effective December 31 to focus on his new businesses and philanthropic endeavors. Nice quote from Dara Khosrowshahi saying, very few entrepreneurs have built something as profound as Travis Kalanick did with Uber. Uh, and then sources close to Kalanick say he's liquidated his shares uh, in Uber, which was already well underway, having sold $2.5 billion worth uh, in the past several quarters. But um, we'll see what this means for Uber in terms of chapters forward and for Travis himself? Yeah, you know, we were chatting earlier, is this a vote of confidence in Uber? Well, you, I don't think you can say that. On the other hand, I don't know that it's a saying that it, he doesn't believe in the future of the comp company either. I, that would be hard to believe. I do think it's just part of this essential transition from the upstart innovator to the more established company. And Uber has become a big part of the status quo in many cities now. It's great having you once again, Jim. Thanks. Nice to Thank be you, here. Jim. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and everybody watching. I, I think it, I'm hoping a little bit. We, the stock market has certainly helped make it merry. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, Jim Stewart. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.